Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. This is our last sermon on this text, at least in this Acts series. We will look finally at Luke's small summary. The four habits that defined and that built the church on this Pentecost day. So after this comes then in chapters 3 and 4, four, a conflict with the temple leadership. And we'll get into that next week. Peter and John's healing of the man at the beautiful gate and leaping over that temple boundary. And then the temple leadership reacting negatively and Peter getting arrested for his sermon. And you know that again, Acts is the story of the kingdom on mission to give us certainty that the message we've heard is true. And this story of Pentecost tells us that. The story of the new temple overcoming the old temple in the next chapter gives us that certainty. We'll talk about that next week. But for now, listen to Acts 2, and we'll just read verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's pray. Father, help us to continue steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Help us to give ourselves to these things, to be in them. And we pray that we would see your church grow by 26 times as it did on that Pentecost day. Thank you that we are the new temple, better than the old temple. Don't let us waste that, Father. Help us, too, to be one holy Catholic and apostolic. Now, free our hearts from care and distraction. Help us to focus on these four characteristics of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a path into this summary text where Luke gives us the four descriptors of the church, now this is the mini-summary. We looked last week at the major summary with the 14 descriptors, but verse 42 is the mini-summary with the four descriptors. As a path into this, I want to compare these four to the other famous four descriptors of the church from the Nicene Creed, that the church is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Now, this is not some kind of sick exercise in making the creed look stupid. We know that the biblical language is always going to be richer, fuller, and more practical than the creedal language. And so it is here. The creed tells us that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. How do we get there? Well, Luke tells us that. The Bible tells us to continue in the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And when we do those four things, when we do the four biblical things, then we will have the four creedal things. So we'll look at each of these four in the text and then see which ones of the creedal descriptions they most closely parallel. The four biblical activities of the church are larger and more practical than the four creedal characteristics, but they imply those four creedal characteristics. So once again, we see in the primary place, as it was, of course, in verse 41, 
first element and the most important element in the church is to continue steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. Without that, there is no church. We talked about that last week, and of course we'll talk about it again because it's in the text again that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. This continuing steadfastly is really could be translated as always. They were always hearing the apostles' teaching. They were always fellowshipping, always breaking bread, always praying. Not in the sense, of course, that they did it every minute of every day, but rather in the sense that they constantly recurred to it. They always came back to it. Some of you have had a number of trips recently, and you might come to me and say, feels like I'm always in the car. And I'll say, oh man, you must need to go to the chiropractor if you spent the last 168 hours inside a car. And I'll get slapped for being a smart aleck, right? Because you're not saying I spent seven consecutive days without opening the door of my car. You're saying I get back in the car and drive another 10 hours, seems like, all the time. I'm always in the car. And it could fairly be said of those in this room that we are always at church. Now we might only be in this building two or three hours a week. But because we come back here week after week after week, every time we're here, the worship is on, we're here to do it, we are always participating. So it is with these four things in Luke's mini-summary. The church was always doing these things and the church still needs to always be doing these things they continued in the apostles teaching always they came back to it again and again and again what is the apostles teaching well of course in this era it meant that you went to where an apostle was and you sat down and the apostles started talking and taught you some christian truths We don't have that version of the apostolic teaching anymore. All those original 12 apostles or original 14 apostles, we talked about the different counts, they're all dead. Instead, we continue in the apostles' teaching today through their writings, what we call the New Testament, the product of the apostles. We continue in it through reading their source, which is what we call the Old Testament. They got their writings, by and large, out of those first 39 books of the Bible. And we continue in the apostles' teaching by paying attention, by listening to truth about the apostles' topic. What was their topic? Well, their topic was Jesus Christ in relation to his Father, in relation to his Spirit, in relation to his people. How do we continue in the apostles' teaching? By listening to their writings by reading their source, the Old Testament, by learning more about Jesus as he's related to his Father, his Spirit, and his people. That's the Apostles' teaching. That's what the church is built on. And that's why, then, a church that drifts off mission into some other field is catastrophically weakened. So Luke does not tell us that they continued in business school 
in learning psychology, in biology, in politics, in economics, in financial peace. None of that is the mission of the church. The church exists to hear the apostles' teaching. Sharing my heart for the Mexicans, or so-and-so's fervent desire to reach the Japanese people, that's not the apostles' teaching. Is there anything wrong with financial peace, biology, a heart for the Mexicans? No. But that's not what the church is about or what the church is for. The church is about continuing, being always in the apostles' teaching. And yes, then in terms of the four creedal characteristics, obviously hearing the apostles' teaching makes us apostolic. One of the most discussed things in the church, or was in the Reformation era, what counts as apostolicity? Is it that the apostles ordained somebody who ordained somebody who ordained somebody? Is it institutional continuity? That was Rome's position. And that then was the position of the Anglican church as well. The reformers came and said, no, it has nothing to do with institutional continuity. To be a follower of the apostles, to be an apostolic church, is to be a church that pays attention to the apostles' writings, to the apostles' source, to the apostles' topic. That's apostolicity. Not institutional continuity. But listening to the apostles' teaching doesn't just make us apostolic, it also makes us one. Because we have something in common. I listen to the apostles' teaching. Oh, you listen to the apostles' teaching too. We are united around the truth about Jesus that the 14 apostles taught. And then finally, the apostles' teaching makes us holy. Holiness is a statement of purpose. To be holy is to exist for a certain task. In this case, of course, the task of glorifying and enjoying God. Orienting my life around getting a daily and weekly dose of the Apostles' teaching is practical holiness. My purpose is to learn more about Jesus, to know Jesus better. Therefore, I set my life up in such a way that I regularly, in fact, I always am coming back to hear more about who Jesus is. So the Apostles' teaching makes us one, it makes us holy, it makes us apostolic. So listen to the Apostles' teaching. Further, the church was always fellowshipping. Now that's a word, of course, that we continue to use a lot in Christian circles and don't ever use anywhere else. Fellowship. What is fellowship? Well, it's the act of having a fellow. right? Or in this case, specifically the act of having a fellow Christian fellowship is a relationship built on having something in common. Thus, politicians say, my fellow Americans. What do I have in common with that stinking politician? Well, we're from the same country, unfortunately. And so he calls on me as a fellow and then names the thing we have in common. We're both Americans. I call on you as fellow Christians, that's what we have in common. 
We know Jesus. We have the same Father. And therefore, fellowship is the act of acknowledging one another and building a relationship around. You know Jesus. I know Jesus too. Right? That's what Christian fellowship is. We can build a relationship around all kinds of things. Our shared love for motorcycles. Our shared interest in baking bread or criminal psychology or you name it. But that's not Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship is a relationship built around a shared love for Jesus Christ. And that's what they did in the early church. They were always fellowshipping. Constantly building relationships with their brothers and sisters that centered on that point of commonality. They didn't ignore or deny other points of commonality. But the one that the whole relationship was founded on was this. I'm your fellow Christian. You're my fellow Christian. That's what we have in common. And that's why then we deliberately from the beginning believe in diversity, not as the world understands it, but as Christ taught it. What's important is not the color of our skin, the content of our character, the size of our bank account, the field in which we work, the cut of our clothing. None of that is what our relationship with each other is built on. That's why Revelation shows the great multitude from every tribe, language, people, tongue, nation, and socioeconomic status. Because what draws us together is not a shared anything else other than love for Jesus Christ. So they continued in that fellowship. That, of course, made them one. The oneness of the church is expressed in our fellowship. Building a relationship around what we have in common in Christ. It's also what makes us Catholic. The creed says that we're one holy Catholic church. Catholic is just a Greek word, or a Greek phrase, kataholikos, which means according to the whole. A Catholic church is an according to the whole church, or a church that's part of the complete church. In that sense, of course, taking the name Catholic for an individual local church is as silly as taking the name winning or better for an individual local sports team. The New York Yankees are welcome to change their name to the New York Winners. But they will still lose some games. Right? Any local church can call itself the Catholic Church, the according to the whole church, but it will not be the whole church just because it made its name We Are the Whole Church. No, you're part of the church. Yankees win sometimes. And so with the name Orthodox as well. Orthodox means correct praise. We praise God rightly in this church. Well, that's great. That should describe every church. But again, 
To call yourself Catholic doesn't make you the whole church any more than calling yourself Orthodox makes you always correct. And it works about as well as the girl named Charity who came into the crisis pregnancy center. No, chastity. And my mother was volunteering there 30 years ago. You can have the name, but you also have to have the reality. So, having fellowship makes us Catholic. We participate in the whole church by building relationships with each other that are founded on our point of commonality that we know and love Jesus. You love him, I love him, therefore we have fellowship. So fellowship makes us one and makes us Catholic. Notice then that Catholicism, or being part of the whole church, is manifested much better on the local level than on the international level. Catholicity is determined more by whether I get along with the church member who left muddy footprints on my, in my house on five different occasions this week than it is by whether I am in communion with the Srinivan Rajaratnam Baptist Church somewhere in South India. Easy to get along with churches far away. We love our Indian friends. They never bother us. But our American friends, right, the person sitting next to me in the pew who made a judgy comment last week, the Christian who actually offended me or actually blessed me, the person who actually hurt me or actually brought me a meal, right, sometimes at the same time, that, that's where Catholicity is enacted. That's where I show that I am part of the whole church, by getting along with you, the person next to me, the person who said and did exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time this past week. That's genuine Catholicism, to love that person. That's why the New Testament has so much about bearing with one another in love. When you're building relationships based on this in common, we both love Jesus, then you don't have necessarily those other things that the world relies on to make its relationships go smoother. Christians may have nothing in common with each other except this shared love for Christ. If you're going to be Catholic... If you're going to be always fellowshipping, you must bear with your clueless fellow Christians. They will hurt and offend you. And if they haven't, you're not fellowshipping like you should be. So they continued in the apostles' teaching, they continued in fellowship, they continued in the breaking of bread. Now, as we see throughout the pages of the New Testament, in this era, there was no distinction made between the Lord's Supper and the potluck. As far as we can tell, the early church in the book of Acts regarded those two as one and the same. Later, they were split into two different 
pieces of church life. And these days, they weren't. They broke bread together steadfastly, and in fact, verse 46 tells us that they did it not just in a central location, but also from house to house. They were always eating together. Both in what we would call the stylized meal of the Lord's Supper, and also in a genuine feed. I'm starving, I've been working all day long, I'm going to eat, and I'm going to have my brothers and sisters there to eat with me. There are two sides to this breaking bread from house to house. One is that somebody hosts, the other is that somebody comes. Two different functions, perhaps, both necessary for continuing in the breaking of bread. That is to say, I'm not good at hospitality or I'm not good at accepting invitations is really parallel to saying, I'm not good at hearing the apostles. I'm not good at fellowship. I'm not good at prayers. I don't give invitations. I don't accept invitations because, well, this aspect of the life of the church just doesn't appeal to me. As my pastor said when I was serving in California, if you invite people over, you're a prisoner in your own home until they leave. Well, you know, some people really do look at it that way. And of course, it's quite true. You are a prisoner in your own home. To invite someone over is to offer up the use of your space, your stuff, your food, to ungrateful wretches who might, or, you know, at some point will waste or break or ruin something you hold dear. The test of hospitality then is a test of what do I love more? Jesus or my space, my stuff, my food? And in the same way, of course, hospitality, the other side of it is to accept. To humble yourself and say, I have my own food, but I'll come eat yours. I have my own space where I don't have to be bothered with you, but I'll come put up with you. I have my own stuff that's frankly better quality. If I go to your house, I might not get, right, you name it. My back hurts when I sit in their chairs. Or the way they do their dishes. I'm just nervous about eating off those plates. They continued here in the early church in the breaking of bread. They ate together. Always. They kept coming back to it. So just ask yourself, could it be said of me that I am always breaking bread with my fellow believers? Is that part of my Christian life, my Christian walk, my Christian practice? Hospitality requires you either to open your own home, your own space, your own stuff, or to be that appreciative other who says, in accepting your invitation, I accept the hospitality, the generosity of Christ. 
more blessed to give than to receive, right? Better to be hospitable than to be invited. But to be invited and accept is also necessary for this economy to work. Well, the early church didn't just listen to the apostles' doctrine, didn't just build relationships. They also ate together. Maybe, as our Roman Catholic friends said in the early 20th century, the family that prays together stays together. Certainly, Luke is telling us the church that eats together is the church that does what we've been doing from the very beginning, that enacts the Pentecost church. So when you do eat together, you're affirming not only the holiness of belonging to Christ, but also your unity with fellow believers who feast on Christ with you. Because we're one, I invite you over. Because we're one, I'd go to your house, even though I consider it secretly cramped or messy or not as clean as my house. Or, right, maybe the other way. I consider your house so beautiful, so large, so far beyond anything I could ever offer that I'm embarrassed to go there. And surely there was both in the Jerusalem church. There were no dedicated church buildings. You had to meet in private homes. And some people have big houses and some people have tiny houses. Then and now. So breaking bread makes us one. It unites us together. It makes us holy by communicating Christ to us. We see the Lord Jesus supremely in this meal, but as I said, this meal was not broken out of the potluck until later on in the church's history. Christ communicates himself to us, not only in the sacrament, but also in genuine eating together. But of course, breaking bread together is something we do as a church in this meal. One major weak point in my ministry is encouraging people to prepare for the Lord's Supper. I just almost never do that. But you should prepare. And I should encourage you to prepare. Because Paul tells us, examine yourself, be ready. Because this is where Christ gives himself to us. Well, finally, not only did they do the Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, but they also participated in the prayers. They were always praying. Later on in Acts, we'll see that they knew that Saul of Tarsus had been converted because he was caught in prayer. Behold, he prays. Is this characteristic of your Christian life? always praying. Whenever I get a chance, I'm back talking to God with my brothers and sisters. Jesus is the most incredible, strong, creative, brilliant, worthy human being the world has ever seen. We know that. That's why we're here. 
And He is eager to talk to you. To spend time with you. To be prayerless is to contradict our confession about who Jesus is. Worthy is the Lamb. But worthier is my other obligations over here. Or my other fun activities over here. And I could go out to dinner or I could go to prayer meeting. Go on a walk or go to prayer meeting. Watch my favorite movie or go to prayer meeting. Catch up on my laundry or go to prayer meeting. Right? The list goes on and on and on. There are millions of things to do in this world. But if Jesus really is the best human being, God incarnate, and we really are dependent on Him for everything, then we should love to pray. Enjoy it, rely on it, need it more than we want or desire these other things. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Prayer makes you holy. Holiness is not about moral purity. Moral purity is a side effect of holiness. Holiness is about your purpose. What do you live for? I live for God. Well, that's what holiness is. When you pray, you enact the reality of living for God. I live for God, therefore I take time that could be spent on any number of other activities, good or bad, and I use that time to say to God, I depend entirely on you. Without you, I can do nothing. I need you more than I need food, sleep, to get my laundry done. Or you name it. Whatever it is you want to put in there. Our church should be continuing in the Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. If it's not, we're not like the early church, and we shouldn't expect to see the results of the early church. Growth of 26 times in a single day. Things of that nature. We, We just won't see it. If you want to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, you need to pray with fellow Christians. That's a non-negotiable. If you want to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, you need to eat with fellow Christians. Their place, your place, restaurant, park. It doesn't say that you have to eat in a certain place. It says you have to eat together. You have to continue in fellowship. You have to build relationships not just around whatever we have in common in worldly terms. I like politics. You like politics. I like homeschooling curriculum. You like homeschooling curriculum. It's more than that. It's a relationship founded on a shared love for Christ. And we have to continue in hearing the apostles' teaching. 
I know what the Bible says about who Jesus is. And you do too, because you continue in hearing the apostles' teaching. If you do these things, you'll be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And you'll be a great church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the early Christians did not experience these four activities as a burden, as a law coming down from on high, but rather as the spontaneous overflow of their delight in your Son and therefore in one another. Father, we have room to grow in our knowledge of the Apostles' teaching. We have room to grow in fellowship. As we're often more comfortable building relationships on anything and everything other than a shared love for Christ. We have room to grow in breaking bread together. As we often go into our own home and close the door and say, glad I'm not breaking bread with any fellow Christians right now. I'm just not up to it. And Lord, we have room to grow in continuing in prayer. We do get together to pray. But often it's the briefest thing on the agenda. Lord, help us, as you helped your people on Pentecost Day, to love to pray, to love to break bread together, to love to fellowship, to love to hear the apostles' teaching. Turn our hearts so that we can greatly delight in your commandments. Open our eyes to behold the wondrous things that come to the church that participates in these four apostolic practices and thereby becomes one holy Catholic and apostolic. We need your help, Father. We need your Spirit to make us people who delight in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So we pray for him now to come and bless us with the delight in these four things. In Jesus' name, amen.